This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. Now, do you know things about general knowledge? You only need to answer ten questions and you could become our Prime Minister. And who wouldn't want to be Prime Minister right now? Uh, on my radio show, every day, ten to one, we do a quiz called Can You Get to Number Ten? It's ten very easy general knowledge questions. Uh, the more questions you get right, the better the job you get in our cabinet. And then if you get all ten right, you become Prime Minister. We might even send you a certificate one day. Uh, if you want to do the quiz, email me now, matt.shawley at times.radio, and we can get you on the radio very soon. Enough of that nonsense now, though. Uh, coming up on today's episode, our big thing today, do you remember Boris Johnson's slightly peculiar levelling up speech uh, from a few weeks ago? Well, at the time, he asked council leaders to send him an email with any ideas of how to level up. So we've asked council leaders to do just that. We'll hear from several of them from across the country on what levelling up means to them and what they want the government to do. And we'll also assess, is that really viable? First, though, it's our economist panel. No Indian night today, as she's off uh, trying to find out if the sea is indeed still closed. Uh, so instead, James Marriott is joined by the new statesman's Rachel Cunliffe. James, you, we, well, it's not quite the countryside. It's the bit between the city and the countryside that you've written about in your column today. Um, in praise, really, of the suburbs. Yes, I, I, yeah, I wrote this um, in, in praise of the suburbs, kind of tied to um, the figures which I find quite interesting that basically come from kind of all around the Western world about how our inner cities are emptying out and um, more and more people are moving to the suburbs, especially middle class people, uh, especially millennials, basically, I think, because um, house prices in most inner cities everywhere from Paris to London to New York have just uh, massively rocketed with the influx of, sort of this global class of super wealthy people who are buying a lot of the flats just as investment opportunities. And the kind of gentrification that happened, what began to happen, what, 30, sort of 40 years ago, of all the middle class people moving to the suburbs. And moving from the suburbs to the inner city is now kind of reversing. Everyone's everyone's emptying out again. And I thought it was a good opportunity uh, to try and stick up for the suburbs, which have had a pretty appalling uh, reputation for about 100 years now. Uh, when you read kind of histories of people's um, attitudes to the suburbs, it's been like just overwhelmingly negative for about um, for about 100 years. Everyone from like novelists to uh, 
you know, I mean, music to, um, to you know, town planners, to philosophers, everybody, everybody hates the suburbs and thinks they're boring and dull and everyone sort of ha- lives in the same house and drives the same car and is like the same kind of person. Uh, and as someone who was raised in the suburbs and who a few years ago was actually living in the suburbs in, in my, my grandma's spare bedroom in Essex, thought it was time to um, it was time to stick up for them. I thought you made, there's a really interesting point you made, which was that, the, the, what used to be the thing that made the suburbs dreary, having a house, a car, slightly dull, unprecarious employment, is actually, you know, that's like the mythical, yeah, unobtainable thing. It's dream nowadays. Um, uh, and that's why maybe that, that's, that, that it has some more appeal. Yeah, I think so. And I also just kind of wanted to, I mean, I was getting a bit, um, I was getting a bit poetic in my column and I just wanted to stick up for, the real, I don't know, because I, I used to, when I, so a few years ago, um, I moved back into my grandma's, bed, well, not back into it, I hadn't actually grown up in my grandma's spare bedroom, but I moved into my grandma's spare bedroom in Essex, in the suburban part of Essex, and I used to kind of spend my afternoons wandering around it at a slightly loose end, and I just, I don't know, I just think there's something so kind of, there's a kind of overlooked poetry to the suburbs, all these kind of people's lives going on all these houses, this kind of specific part of the country that's built to, you know, that's just built for people to live in and just think of you know just think of all these people living for decades and decades in these houses with you know people's childhoods unfolding there and people growing old and i just um i kind of felt there was something that had been overlooked when people think the suburbs are boring and the least poetic place in the world i want to kind of say that actually there's a little bit of poetry there i think rachel are you getting all dewy-eyed at this yeah, the, the point about uh, the adventure of having a, a boring job and, and, and children and a car just reminds me of this bit in one of one of Terry Pratchett's books where there's a, a boy who's born into the circus life um, and it's all it's, 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 it's all too much. And, and he dreams of uh, becoming an accountant and actually a tribe of itinerant <laughs> accountants wander by and he runs away from the circus to join the accountants. <laughs> Um, I think I think there is some of that. I'm actually in the process of trying to move to, well, sort of to the suburbs, although would, would you call zone four the suburbs if it's on the tube map? I think there's a definitional point there. Um, but but for exactly that, for for space and for a different kind of adventure, I guess, the adventures that you have in your 30s and 40s that are slightly different than the ones you have in your teens and your 20s. But I think the, the defining thing that makes the suburbs or makes anywhere less boring, there are two things. One would be, who are you there with? If all your friends are moving to similar places and you get to continue whatever lifestyle you want because you're with other people who are interested in the same things that you do it doesn't necessarily matter where you are there are some family friends of my partners who uh moved out from oxford they they all en masse six families found a little village in scotland where property prices were dirt cheap and decided to just move their lovely oxford lifestyle up to live in mansions in in, in rural scotland which which sounds very nice um and the other thing that i think makes a huge difference is is transport it's fine to live somewhere that's boring inverted commas and conventional and sleepy and predictable if you can also get easy access into something that's a bit more exciting when you want it so i'm all for suburbs just better connectivity with cities and i suppose actually that's that's part of the thing as well isn't it is the is the um when you're young you're you're sort of happier to live in a smaller place quite a small flat if it's in a good area you can get to all the fun more easily and maybe when you get older actually you start prizing having somewhere nicer to live and if particularly the last 18 months uh people who have been able you know have lived in a slightly bigger house during lockdowns and that sort of thing you say oh actually this is the pl- the, the the building you live in is quite important it's not just about location 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 as they say yeah i think so i mean 
I'm trying to think because yeah, I mean, my my last experience of living in a in a kind of in a proper house wasn't I staying with my grandma, and it is nice to have a living room. Um, <laughs> it's, she had a garden as well, and um, I actually. Um, I, I, the, I, the little vegetable patch at the end of the garden, so I would come home every night. You're describing my house now, James, because I, mo- I moved <laughs> what out What do you of grow London. your vegetable patch? Because I grew beetroot. Uh, yeah, I've got beetroot. The carrots and parsnips are coming on nicely. Ooh, the pumpkin, Better than me. A couple of decent pumpkins, sweet corn. I found it a real tie, the vegetable, pa- vegetable patch there. I, I wasn't anticipating how much care it would take, so I come home. Sorry, sorry is, this, is this Times Radio or Clarkson's phone? <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say Gardner's question time, so I appreciate that we might be, you know... That's a sort of slightly trendier end of horticulture. Um, uh, but no, but we, so I, you know, I'd lived in London for five, six years, something like that. And then we moved to Hampshire because, A, so we could live in a house and not a cupboard. Uh, and it's a nice place and we can walk to a shop or walk to a pub or, you know, see friends and all that. And we've got a garden, uh, which is all just stuff that you couldn't do in central London. Yeah, I mean, I think as I was saying, I mean, the one thing is I was saying, uh, I was saying uh, last week that I do currently live above a Tesco, which you can't do in the suburbs. I don't think you're often a bit, you're often a bit stuck. The um, the kind of big urban, the sort of fashionable urban planning idea that I've been reading about, researching my column that I'm quite into is this idea of herb. I think they call them, ridiculously call them herb herbs, which are kind of um, <laughs> this new, this sort of new idea that's kind of supposed to be a cross between suburbs and sort of traditional city centres that's supposed to appear to millennials and things that will be these kind of medium density places this sounds where... like a rebrand of suburbs to me yes but with a stupider name <laughs> um, <laughs> and maybe some graffiti at the end of the road yes exactly yeah. but i think you know they're supposed to be because i think the, the one the one thing that can get a bit sort of weird about suburbs is just those vast dormitories of houses for people to sleep in where you know you're just miles away from the nearest tesco and this idea is that you know you'll have things like you know coffee shops and cafes and things more integrated into the communities rather than these great spreading you know masses of houses everyone has to you know go miles and miles and miles to get to Tesco, which I think is, which I think is good because proximity to Tesco has become quite an important part of my lifestyle. So. As we've discussed previously, yes. your um, ability to go and visit the Tesco's downstairs up to 10 times a day. Yeah, I don't know what I'd do without that. Eating your fresh pasta. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so I do remember. I do actually oh, listen. you know all about me. That's yeah. kind of, In the bath. Kind of, is that lovely? You, you, we all no discover comment. in the end that we all share a bit too much on the radio. <laughs> uh, let's um, let's move away from James's uh, d- peculiar dining arrangements. Although this is to do with food, you see, James, there's another link there. That's yeah. what I'm doing. You see, linking from one item to the next one. Um, uh, Nigella Lawson has removed the word "slut" from her recipe repertoire um, uh, because she does because because it, it might sensitivities are running high apparently. Rachel, what do you make about what do you make of this? I love this column. I love everything about it uh, because, like like the author, I too identify with both definitions of, of slut that she puts forward. The one that we might be familiar with, which is the the, the sex positive woman, uh, which is the thing that Nigella Lawson is saying. Well, maybe it's not a nice word. Maybe it hasn't quite been reclaimed in the way that feminists think it has. Maybe we shouldn't be using it. Um, but also pointing out that slut originally didn't mean that at all it meant somebody who was disorganized a bit messy didn't bother to brush their hair and didn't in the case of spaghetti make all everything from scratch with fresh ingredients but just started to throw in whatever happened to be in, in the cupboard which is totally my approach to cooking when I can be bothered to do it which is very 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 rarely um and uh, it, I think it's Words change, uh, and the idea that the this word is offensive because of the way some people use it as a slur, uh, and, and that means that any other previous meaning of it 
uh, is irrelevant and that it's impossible to to reclaim it, I think is is, is a bit sad. And when it comes to spaghetti, uh, one of my favourites <laughs> is is pasta pasta puttanesca, which is traditionally translated as whore's pasta. Um, which I think is, is, is very fitting with, with this article. Uh, but actually, according to my partner, who knows some Italian slang, it's more a kind of any old crap you have in the cupboard, throw it into your <laughs> pasta and make, and, 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 and make a lovely lunch. And I think that is the definition of sluts cooking. Just make it up as you go along. And that's the sort of cooking that most of us actually do, rather than closely following. And that's what I really like about Nigella's cooking generally, is that most of her recipes will say, if you haven't got this, stick some of that in instead. Um, but I thought it was really... So Polly Vernon's written about it in uh, Times 2 in the paper today. And she says that she talks about this sort of trend of c- celebrities semi-cancelling themselves, sort of preempting. I'm not aware that anyone's expressed any unhappiness with Nigella's. It was, it was just... Or maybe actually this is a very clever way of getting us to talk about uh, Nigella's delicious... Uh, slut spaghetti recipe is that something that's on your spaghetti repertoire james well um by the definition of slut that's just been um just been discussed in terms of cooking i've realized that i probably am a slut which is not something i'd ever um <laughs> been, been accused of previously um um yes i mean i don't know i do suspect it might be a little bit of a sort of um isn't it not a bit of a publicity ploy will not a lot of people go to get very angry and go oh god ah oh, the english language such beautiful um, poetic words as slut of being excised from our language and then other people you know say how wonderful she is and you know everyone will disagree but you know they'll have thought of Nigella Lawson and she'll be in their head next time they're buying cookery books that's my cynical interpretation this is the same woman who said micro micro wave yeah uh which got loads more people to watch her tv show so she's not she's a genius at this although I'm not I won't have a word said against her because she was on Mariella's show last year and uh, my daughter asked her a question about the, the best cake to make, and she replied, and now we, we live by her coffee, <laughs> her chocolate and coffee walnut cake. Nice. So I won't have a word. So, but no, it, was, it was basically the same thing. She said, go on my website, find the coffee recipe, take some of the coffee out, put some chocolate in instead, and that's even more delicious. Why do you have a personalised Nigella Lawson yeah. recipe? Wow. Yeah. But that's, that's what cooking is, isn't it? Exactly. That is what cooking is. Um, and yeah, I, t- I tell you what's what's really a sluttish attitude to cooking is is not doing it and marrying someone who do all the cooking for you. <laughs> is that what you've done? That's what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, True sluts lifestyle. That that's proper. That is that is proper sluts lifestyle. Um, just because of our co- ongoing commitment to drive away all cat lovers from this show, we ought to talk about Carrie and the cats. Um, uh, number ten has been forced to deny that um, help has been given to this bloke Pen Farthing and his ruddy animals uh, in Afghanistan uh, on the after coming under pressure from Carrie Johnson. Uh, animal rights activist Carrie Johnson uh, had put pressure on Boris Johnson to rescue the stranded animals, overruling uh, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary. Uh, where do you stand on cats, James? Um, yeah, I think. Well, I mean, pro cats, probably not quite pro cats to this extent. I think sort of pro cats, as in you know, nice presence in the living room. Not pro cats, as in uh, prefer the lives of cats to people trying to escape Afghanistan. I think that's my basic position. Yeah, which I think is probably the reasonable. Position I mean, you're on half right. Because um, <laughs> I don't want a cat in my living room either, but I am with you on the on the second point. Where, where were you on cats, Rachel? Well, as you know, I prefer cats to people, um, but I also understand that that's my personal preference, and it's a bit weird. Uh, and that uh, objectively, a human life is, is is more valuable than a cat or a dog or a pig or or anything else. Uh, and the the row over Operation Ark and the get, rescuing these two hundred animals from Afghanistan, like I. I I get it. I love animals. I know that animals are part of the family. Uh, I 
I am, I am probably the. What would you say? I'm, I'm the, I'm the ultimate cat lover on, on Times Radio. Um, but even I think I so. Think... If it was up to me, you wouldn't be booked. Uh, <laughs> exactly, <but>. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. My, 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 my pro cat views would get cancelled. Um, but even I think this is ridiculous and tragic. Uh, and the, the row currently going on about whether Ben Wallace organized, uh, authorized it, although he said he wouldn't, and then they pointed towards the prime minister. And obviously, Carrie Johnson is an animal rights activist, and now Downing Street has come back and said no, it wasn't anything to do with that. Look, the fact is that if these animals Animals, these animals getting rescued means that humans, uh, Afghanistan people, will not be able to be evacuated. So it really is a kind of animals versus people. It's, 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 it's very much last places on the ark. And after everything that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, I don't think it matters whether you're an animal rights activist or, or, or not. We may love our animals, but this really does seem like not a particularly humane call, does it? And the really depressing thing is uh, hearing from uh, MP, and actually I've had it to some extent, people DMing me and messaging me on Twitter and that sort of thing, but MPs saying they've had more messages and emails about the cats and the dogs than they have about the people. Um, and, uh, you know, that just sort of slightly tells you something about the attitude of some people. Getting amazingly cross about why we're not doing more to help the dogs. And I love and that's dogs. that's new. I, I, I interviewed Jess Phillips earlier this year and she says she gets more animals, more emails about saving animals, saving donkeys, saving cats and dogs than she than she does about reducing violence against women. It's just a sad fact of life that the British people care more about animals than they do about people. Yeah, I mean, it's the was it the um, the RSPCA was founded uh, long before the Royal Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Children. It's always been and the of... donkey donkey sanctuaries like oh, one get, of like, the richest. Yeah, loads of charity, yeah, loads charities, of charity money. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, that's our our morning effort to upset all cat lovers. Uh, so thank you for that. Somebody just texted in saying it's not just cats; it's mostly dogs, and seventy one people getting out of Kabul. Well, get the people out. I think that's that's probably the priority, and maybe not distracting government ministers about some cats. Rachel Cunliffe and James Marrett, then, of course, you can read James's column online right now. Go to thetimes.co.uk and get yourself a subscription to get your first month free if you haven't already done that. Right, coming up, levelling up. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. Do you remember this? Five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Level up, 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 level up. Leveling up, funny two-stroke engine cars and their fake coffee, robbing Peter to pay Paul success. Leveling down, you get the general drift of what I'm trying to say. Jam spreading operation. The A303. Hang around the Goldmouth. A, a woman from York borrow a Bible. The magic sauce. The ketchup football pitch. Bad for London. Decapitate the tall poppies. New tram lines, all sorts of things, but particularly junk food. And the serotonin that everybody needs to deal with the, the day. And that is what I mean by levelling up. That was Boris Johnson's levelling up speech last month. And despite, I mean, it's all very clear now. I'm sure you do understand what levelling up is all about. But when he gave his speech, he asked for the help of local leaders. My offer to you is all of you who see, see a role for yourselves in local leadership, come to us in government. Uh, come to Neil O'Brien uh, or to me. 
uh, or to Rob, uh, with your vision for how you will level up, how you will back business, attract more good jobs, and improve your services, and come to us with your plan for strong, accountable leadership. And we will give you the tools to change your area for the better. Yeah, in fact, he was definitely not desperate for their help. Please uh, send, me a, send, me an, send me an email. <laughs> well, we asked council leaders to do just that, to send us an email with uh, their own ideas, their voice notes, their suggestions. And uh, so we, we're going to hear from local leaders around the country and ask what them what they need to level up their local area and to assess whether or not they're going to work, how much they might cost and what the impact might be. I'm joined by Will Tanner, former Danish Street advisor and now uh, from the think tank onward. Hi, Will. Hi, Matt. Uh, and that's to get the Westminster perspective. And then Jonathan Webb from IPPR North, the think tank of the north. Hi, Jonathan. Morning, Matt. So uh, let's start then with, uh, we asked lots of uh, local leaders to send us uh, voice notes. So let's first of all hear from the Labour Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. So if I was to email Boris Johnson with some advice about levelling up, the first thing I would say would be don't make any more jokes, so-called jokes, about Margaret Thatcher and uh, mining communities. Uh, They're not helping. Uh, But then that aside, more positively, I would... Offer him uh, a levelling up deal with Greater Manchester. We've got some really exciting plans that could genuinely change lives in this city region. For instance, a London-style public transport system with London-level fares. As part of the spending review, I'm going to be saying to the government, come on, back us in that ambition. Sign a levelling up deal with Greater Manchester. Let's work together to deliver this. You want levelling up. We want levelling up. Let's sign a clear agreement and get on with it. So that was Andy Burnham's uh, voice note to us. First of all, Will, on the, that politics and the point he was making about Boris Johnson's jokes about Margaret Thatcher uh, when he suggested that she'd, she'd really made a head start on climate change by shutting down all the coal mines. Um, the politics of this and the idea of a Conservative Prime Minister trying to reach into uh, sort of traditional Labour areas which don't uh, have a history of loving the, the Tory party very much, is that still an issue? We sort of slightly forget that... Um, there is some of that residual uh, resentment, despite all those gains they made in the so-called Red Wall? Well, I think, um, so I think it's fair to say that the politics of this are complicated. So the Conservative Party, as you uh, relate, um, won many seats in the north of England and the Midlands, previously Labour heartlands for decades, Um, but they have only just switched. And I think it's wrong to say that those areas will necessarily vote Conservative next time. I think what the Prime Minister recognises is that he needs to deliver on some of the promises made at the last election and to ensure that those areas, the people in those places, see meaningful improvement in their quality of life and the economic opportunity available to them and their children um, and to the lived environment in which they live. Um, And that's why he's majored so much on the levelling up agenda. And I think that's actually quite exciting. It's not intuitive for a Conservative government to be focusing perhaps on those places, but I think it uh, is instructive about the changes in our politics over recent years and the kind of rotation of of the electoral geography, of the electoral map, um, but also the changing nature of the Conservative Party, which is frankly very different from the party that uh, came into government in 2010. Uh, and Jonathan, on the specific idea that Andy Burnham floated there on transport, this is one of the things that I suspect we're going to hear a lot of. Um, this is where local leaders would like to have much more control over transport links in their areas, actually in the way that Boris Johnson did when he was Mayor of London. 
Yeah, completely. So so what Andy Burnham's referencing there is his plans to take um, Greater Manchester's transport under a franchising system, which is essentially fairly similar to what we have in London at the minute. So the idea would be that you would have the transport system under the control of the Greater Manchester Combined Authority, and essentially you'd have a much fairer system of setting fares and working out those fares so that the transport in the local area is a lot more affordable. OK, so that's uh, what uh, Andy Burnham had to say. Let's hear now from Ben Fitter-Harding, the Conservative leader of Canterbury County Council. I'm Ben Fitter-Harding and I'm the leader of Canterbury City Council. Levelling up for Canterbury District has created some incredible opportunities for us, opportunities that I didn't think I would ever see in my time as, as the leader of, of the council of this district. We're looking to make two bids to the levelling up fund in the second round. And those bids, uh, totalling up to £20 million each, um, will be looking to completely uh, reimagine how we look at heritage in the city of Canterbury um, and also how we look at the the seaside experience at Herne Bay and how we can improve and truly level up that offering um, in, in a country that has seemingly changed significantly uh, since COVID and, and seeing the, the visitor numbers that we're, we're having, um, seeing the types of visitors at the coast, it presents an incredible opportunity for us. Um, and then on the flip side, you've got the city of Canterbury where we need to invest in heritage and we're hoping to welcome back um, the hordes of, uh, of international visitors. So incredible opportunities. Um, interventions that a small district council like ours would not really have dreamed of being able to make, uh, especially given the economic position that us and many other councils have been left in since the pandemic. Uh, that was Ben Fitter-Harding, Conservative leader of Canterbury City Council there. I'm mean, I mean, not a surprise, Will, that a Conservative council is a bit more positive about levelling up. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's right. Uh, but it's also interesting, I thought that he was focusing on kind of cultural and heritage assets as the means to, le to levelling up. I mean, a lot of the time we kind of think of levelling up as investing in roads or railway stations. Um, but actually, uh, as has been shown in places like Coventry and Hastings and Great Yarmouth and Margate, it's those cultural assets, those uh, kind of seafronts um, that are essential for improving uh, investment and, and jobs in areas like Canterbury, seaside, coastal towns, which we know have been depressed for a long time. Um, and so I think it is notable that places like Canterbury are thinking about levelling up in those terms. And I think it demonstrates actually what levelling up means. It's not just a, uh, a kind of dry economic agenda. It's actually quite cultural and about the feel of these places as much as uh, their kind of economic fundamentals. OK, let's rattle through uh, a few more of these clips and then we'll sort of see if what uh, themes are emerging. Uh, let's hear now from uh, Marvin Rees, who's the Labour Mayor in Bristol. My name's Marvin Rees. I'm the Mayor of Bristol. Levelling up has to mean tackling inequality and, by extension, realising the full potential of the UK. Social immobility and inequality undermines the UK's potential because it leaves billions of pounds worth of talent undeveloped in the economy. And so tackling that inequality, levelling up the national potential are all interdependent. Three considerations uh, of levelling up I, I really want to be borne in mind. First off, any approach has to be data led. Uh, it has to follow real evidence of 
what to invest, when, how to make sure we're, we're leveling up. Not politically led, choosing to uh, invest in specific places because it uh, serves our political interests. Secondly, we have to recognise that there's a geographical component to this. There has been, there is a north-south divide. We need to tackle that. But my third point offers a qualification to that in that there are particular people groups who are left behind irrespective of where they live. If we do not take that into account alongside the geography, we will leave major inequalities in the south of the UK, but also we may strengthen the northern economy, but those particular people groups in the north will not benefit from that stronger economy. So we'll compound inequalities um, in the north. What I would want from the Prime Minister is predictable finance. Uh, we are too often at the local government level, uh, place-based level, waiting for decisions, delayed dead deadlines, uh, delayed uh, reports uh, from national government. That undermines our ability to plan with our partners in our cities. We need that ability to plan so we can plan inclusion, we can plan decarbonisation, and we could become uh, stronger, more predictable, more certain uh, partners. Uh, that's Marvin Rees, uh, the mayor of Bristol, and making the point that it's not just necessarily pitching different areas against one another, but also um, different. It's different groups. It's not just a geographical thing. Uh, lots of the times, this has been sort of slightly portrayed as being uh, London versus the rest of the country. Uh, this is Darren Rodwell, who's the Labour deputy chair of London Councils. I'm Councillor Darren Rodwell, deputy chair of London Councils. We represent all 32 London boroughs, and we have the City of London in our formation. It's all important that everyone understands that London isn't one place. In fact, it's a collection of villages and towns over centuries. The government's levelling up agenda rightly has to acknowledge that all communities, no matter where they are located in the UK, must benefit. So it isn't London versus the North. It isn't the North versus London. It's not the South West versus the North actually all need to benefit. Everyone, no matter where they live, want a good job. They want to progress in their careers, in their towns, cities or regions. London is no different. There are communities that are in desperate need. In fact, London holds some of the most deprived areas in the country. My own borough, case in point, is the most deprived borough in London with acute poverty and it's the fifth most deprived area in the country. So the levelling up agenda is really important to all of us. London faces immense social and economic challenges. COVID-19 pandemic has really hit London hard. We've had the steepest rise in unemployment of any region in the UK. For many years though, we'd already faced major inequalities and deprivation. There's 165,000 homeless Londoners living in temporary accommodation that's the size of Norwich or Oxford. And it's estimated 90,000 of these are children. So if the government really is talking about levelling up, then they need to make sure that no one is left behind. Uh, that was Darren Rodwell from uh, London Councils. He's making the point it's not about uh, pitching London against different parts of the country, including the South West. Well, we can hear from the South West now. Judy Pearce is a Conservative leader of South Ham's District Council. Hello, I'm Judy Pearce and I'm leader of South Ham's District Council. It is home to the South Devon area of outstanding natural beauty and borders on the Dartmoor National Park. And the result of this is that tourism represents 13% of all employment 
and generates over £260 million for the local economy. However, the South Hams has some unique challenges and requires investment to support it, not only in levelling up, but to provide essential long-term community resilience. It has the fifth highest proportion of second home ownership in the country. So in mitigation for this, we need robust planning policy and a change in the very definition of affordable housing so that it isn't linked to average house prices in the area. Affluent and skilled second homeowners mask the skills gap and a lot of higher level qualifications are held by people who have semi-retired or retired to the South Hams. Due to the lack of tertiary education provision within the district, many younger people leave the area to go to university and then can't afford to return to the South Hams until much later in their careers. This leaves a skills shortage within the younger population and a situation where many young people who haven't had the opportunity to go to university are unable to afford to move out of their family homes, leading to a high proportion of multi-generational households with adult children. So to mitigate this, we need a higher proportion of affordable housing when new houses are built and we need inward investment and business expansion activities will be focused on businesses producing higher salaries and higher skilled jobs. With regards to grid infrastructure, the localisation of energy generation could play a significant role in ensuring the longer term sustainability of South Ham's rural and coastal towns. This could lead to a number of opportunities to reduce property run running costs, improve electricity infrastructure resilience and to ensure that electric vehicles are being charged through sustainable means. I'm sure you can understand now that there is a lot to do to level up the South Hams. So that's a picture from uh, the South Hams. Actually, lots of people think it's a nice rural part of the world. Um, lots of people have second homes there and that sort of thing. And they might even think they had money, but a uh, particular demands there. But let's let's cross to the completely the other side of the country now. Uh, rounding off our set, this is Martin Gannon, who's the Labour leader of Gateshead Council in Tyneside. Yes, I'm Martin Gannon, the leader of Gateshead Council. And of course, um, I want the very best deal for Gateshead and for Tyneside. So... We have submitted a bid for a levelling up fund, um, but I have to say that um, whatever, if ever we received any support from the levelling up fund, it would pale into insignificance compared to the huge resources that we've lost from central government over the last 10 years. Gateshead Council alone has lost £170 million in government funding every single year. That's a £1,000 per household, £400 per every man, woman and child in Gateshead. So, you know, yes, I'm, I'm very much look forward to getting a generous settlement from the Level Enough Fund, but it will in no way compensate for the funds that we've lost over the last 10 years. And I also have to say, um, and I don't want to say anything that would ever jeopardise any bid that we put in, but, um, you know, this is a bidding process. Um, some authorities will be successful, some authorities won't be. Um, I suspect that the decision-making on this will be in terms of what is the greatest political benefit for the Conservative Party. How can they get the most votes out of this? Um, oh dear, that, you know, and if that was happening anywhere else in the world, we would call that corrupt. Um, so, you know, I do not like the process. We will participate in the process because we literally have very little choice and we desperately need support for areas in the northeast of England. Um, 
But we'll just have to see what is delivered by government. That's Martin Gannon there, the Labour leader of Gateshead Council in Tyneside. The last of our leaders to send uh, advice, demands to Boris Johnson uh, through our good offices. We're still joined by Will Tanner from the Think Tank Onward and Jonathan Webb from IPPR North. Um, Jonathan, I suppose, just sort of try to pull together some of the themes of all of those. It's partly local power, but also there's no point having power if you haven't got money. And quite often, it, it, it's not long before you, you those leaders uh, set out their demands before you end up coming back to pounds and pence. Yeah, completely. I, I think that sort of hits the nail on the head that there's there's two issues at play here. The first is really a fundamental question about power. And, you know, it's been acknowledged by Boris Johnson himself in his recent speech that the UK is one of the most centralised countries of its type in Western Europe. And that has a real impact in terms of where power lies, that too often decisions are steered from Westminster and that local leaders feel like they don't have a say over what goes on in their local area. The second issue is around investment and essentially what does that investment look look like? And you hear from a lot of those voice clips there that really what local leaders are after isn't kind of a drop in the ocean, you know, a bit of money here, there, everywhere. It's about strategic long-term funding for those local areas. And I think that's really where the government's levelling up approach still requires a bit more flesh on the bones that actually we see that, you know, for example, there might be some money to support the arts and culture in Canterbury, but really, is it doing the things that it needs to do, for example, to, you know, address the housing crisis in the South Hams? And I think that's where the question marks still lie in terms of the government's levelling up approach. And just finally, uh, Will Tanner, um, one of the things that really strikes me is all those part of the reason all those leaders want all the things they're talking about is because it would reflect quite well on them if they delivered it. And is there a tension with if Boris Johnson sort of heeds all those all their demands, who gets the credit for that? Does Boris Johnson get the credit or do those local council leaders? And, you know, quite, you know they're not all Conservatives. Well, I think what we need to do is create a virtuous system, don't we, where local leaders do get the credit for uh, doing interesting things that d demonstrate real impact in their area, because then they'll be encouraged to do more of those things and to take charge of, uh, of local initiatives in future. And um, what we can't have and what levelling up mustn't be is a kind of reversion to the system of politics where local areas just constantly look up to Whitehall for funding for their uh, for whatever they want to do. And that's actually my greatest criticism of levelling up to date is that it has been quite a centralised process with central government bids uh, um, rather than a kind of devolution of power and control. And I was encouraged when the Prime Minister in his uh, speech talked quite seriously about devolution being one of the main pillars of levelling up, um, uh, although we're yet to see the detail, which I assume will come in the white paper in the autumn. So it, it feels to me that actually the government should welcome local areas being ambitious and trying to take some of the credit, because ultimately we need those local leaders to be delivering for their places if those places are going to succeed. And if uh, just finally, if you both were sending your, your own uh, short voice note to the Prime Minister, what would you suggest, Will? Well, I think I think there is um, there are two things that I think the Prime Minister really needs to make sure is part of the levelling up programme. Firstly, what I just said, devolution. So actually meaningful devolution, decentralisation of power from Whitehall to local areas and not just to local authorities, to communities themselves. Um, and secondly, I think one of the biggest drivers of economic divergence is a kind of human capital um, uh, problem. So a lack of skills and education in certain places that perpetuates some of the uh, some of the problems that those places have experienced in previous decades. So a real investment in technical education, in schools where necessary, um, to improve the human capital of those places.
That's Will Tanner there, former number two advisor, and now in the think tank onwards. Jonathan Webb from IPPR North, your your wish list. Yeah, I think I definitely echo uh, Will's point around devolution. It's clear when you you look at what's going on and you listen to leaders like Andy Burnham that a lot of places are already levelling up for themselves. So it's about central government not trying to offer its own plans to those places and rather working with those local leaders to work out how it can devolve more powers to give them the ability to do the things and build the thing, build on the things that they're already doing. So that's definitely a big part of it. I think the second thing is really thinking about you know the social infrastructure that supports levelling up. And actually, a lot of that will need to be delivered by local government. And it's important to remember that local government has faced, you know, severe austerity over the past decade. So a big part of that needs to be rebuilding local government so that local government is actually in a position to support the levelling up agenda and deliver on things such as improving our schools, etc. Really really interesting. Thank you for that. There's Jonathan Webb from IPPR North, uh, the think tank, and also Will Tanner uh, from Onward. And thank you to all the council leaders. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.